0: Horses, mountains, dogs, oh my. These are a few of my favorite things. They are the things that bring me home and connect me to the wisdom of my grandparents and the values I want to instill in my children. My name is Kat caldwell Myers. I live on a small horse farm outside of Chicago with my children, my husband, got a couple of dogs. We all work for the cat. In this podcast, you are gonna hear from some of my mentors, the folks who have helped me get back on the horse and back on my skis after injury, after illness, after pandemic, when all of us had to find ourselves over again to live our best lives. So without further ado, horses, mountains, dogs, oh my. This recording includes explicit adult material. When you hear this bell ring, please turn it off if you have young children around. I'm very excited to meet with you this morning. Madame Halsey.
1: I'm honored, actually. As I have said, I stumbled across a conversation that you had recently with dear friend Carol Shriver and was so moved and became aware that you're doing these conversations. And so just honored that you invited me to chat.
0: Well, thank you so much. And today is St. Patrick's Day and it's 7 a.m. where you are, although you just came back from the East Coast to California.
1: It's okay. It's yeah,
0: okay. Time changes is ever in your favor this morning. And um, I just want to thank you for coming to Horses, Mountains, and Dogs and sharing your story. And I want to first share my first impression and vision of you because I've been <laughs> thinking about this. So I was a freshman at Thatcher, a boarding school far away from home for the first time. And I went into my French class and we were sitting in sort of a horseshoe shape, which is appropriate because horses, Thatcher, right? Right. right. (laughs) And you came in and you had so much energy, just like a supermodel and started speaking French to all of us. (laughs) All these teenagers were going, oh boy, I don't understand a thing she's saying, but she's definitely the teacher and she's definitely teaching us French. (laughs) Buckle up. (laughs) It was amazing, though, because you taught me that immersion experience and the love and the zest and just your humor of the French language and the French culture. And I would just love to hear as an introduction, especially since it was my introduction and first and one of my fondest memories of you, although the fondest is probably you connected to horses and we'll we'll get into that because then we really met on the field which is my deeper passion. I love French but the horses <laughs> as you know brought fair, me enough. The fair enough fair enough.
1: Yeah so that you know that immersion I came to teaching using the immersion method I'll say somewhat slowly which is to say using only the target language in the classroom is a choice. And I came to understand that it's actually very effective, but it took me a minute to get there. But by the time I came to teach here, I was 100 percent committed to that approach. And of course, I don't know if you remember, that was the those were the first moments that you just described. But then I'm pretty sure that we then took a minute to talk about what this method is, why the choice to only use the target language in the classroom sort of why it's so effective. And then reassuring you all that, yeah, you will not understand everything I say. That's the expectation. But you will, with time, start to figure out what things mean because you're going to be associating it. You may remember there was a lot of associating visual imagery with the sounds that were being produced either in the videos that we used or in my Mm -hmm. mouth. And so that initial moment coming into the classroom and kind of having everybody's eyes bug out is like it's it's fun for me too yeah,
0: i bet it is <laughs> yeah yeah
1: and then to watch kids progress over the course of the year is just so exciting and then to watch those moments when a kid literally has the light bulb going on above their head you can just see them figure it out and go oh that's what it means or whatever you know so super fun and Certainly teaching beginning level language is a kick. It's just a, it's a hoot for me. And I hope, I mean, the, the hope is that for kids too, it's, and I always invite kids to imitate me for comic effect, because if you're imitating me, chances are, you're going to sound pretty good, you know, pretty quickly. And so that whole folding in of humor and, And humility, I hope, is part of what I try to do for sure. And keeping, because it's terrifying. I was a terrified student of high school French. I never spoke up. We did not use the immersion method. And half of my brain power was devoted to, can I get away with asking my question in English? Mm. And I think that's another thing that's really powerful about the immersion method is that everybody's in the same boat. You come across the threshold of the room and you just know if you say anything, it's going to be in the target language so that your brain then, I, the hope is, is focused on the target language and not on calculating whether you can navigate the class period not using the target language. Anyway, there are all sorts of really sound reasons and it works. It does work.
0: And I love it. And it's a memory I have forever.
1: Yay. And I love that you
0: have that memory. Well, It's fascinating, too, because two things I'm thinking of, you know, one is the immersion method is actually what life is like. So you have the job interview, and you sign up for French class, and then you're in there. That's life. And
1: you know, it's also the horse program. I mean, that the horse be. program is a real immersion moment too, isn't it? I and mean,
0: we can get there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. The other yeah. thing, I'm thinking, I remember you putting your lips together. Ooh, ooh, <sighs> ooh Okay, so now I have small children. And teaching them, ooh, ah, and recognizing, ah, Madame Ozzy taught me how to do all of this to really help. My daughter is five. She's having a lot of trouble with F, 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 you know? So it's been really interesting to see how the beginning of our language as small children, but also I think the beginning of how we think, how we see the world, how resilient we are when we're in a place of discomfort, mm. right? So Absolutely. I think that's an culture shock, all of that.
1: And being open to, so teaching those vowel sounds in French, being open to trying something different. And so, you know, when teaching those vowel sounds, which we don't use in English, it's about rediscovering things that your face and your mouth and your tongue and your muscles can actually do, but have fallen out of practice because in the language, that we'll just say the English speakers who come into my classroom, they just haven't been using them since they were infants. But we're all born with the capacity to make all of the language sounds in the world. We just have to figure out how to rediscover them.
0: Mm. Well, and now it's a beauty trend, also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ooh, uh, yoga for the face. <laughs> face yoga. Oh,
1: Lord. You know, sometimes I think, oh, I should try that. And then other times, I'm like, no, no, no. Like, You've got it. You've I've got, got the fa- it. I've, you know, You've this is the face. This is just what we're going to work with.
0: You've got it, Madame Halsey. You've got it. Um Thank I would love to hear your experience of the horse program because we both had our first year at Thatcher and you're still at Thatcher and you are I mean, you've become such an incredible horsewoman. It's been amazing. And I only know this because I see your images on Facebook and that gray mare you had. And, you know, I've just been there with you following horsewoman to horsewoman, your journey. Will you share what was it like? Had you been around horses before Thatcher? What was your immersion experience?
1: I love this question because I had not been around horses before. I was hired here to teach French. I now teach French and English. And when I visited, I actually followed one of my children to Thatcher. It's kind of a long story. My The fellow I was married to was born and grew up here. So it had been in our family folklore forever. And we were actually at Phillips Academy in Andover. And our second daughter decided she wanted to come to Thatcher. And, you know, 3,000 miles away, what? Anyway, the short version is she came to Thatcher And I came out that fall for a fall family weekend, and the opening in the French department was on the horizon. And again, short version, somebody asked me if I'd be interested, and then I got the job. And when I came out to interview in the spring, they flew me out. I had a dear friend, Susan Hardenberg, and her husband were friends of ours in a former lifetime. And so Susan was involved in the horse program and she took me for a ride. And I just said to the people who were responsible for the hiring, I wanted to be involved. And please sign me up for that. Because as you know, in these schools, we have what is referred to as the triple threat. We all work in the classroom, in the dormitory, and we all do some form of afternoon activity or athletics. Anyway, they signed me up. And my first year, so I started riding probably two weeks before you all arrived in the fall. And Mike Swan, who is just an extraordinary human and a remarkable horseman, who knows so much about the horse writ large, uh, the physical, mental, he rides like a god, and he's very generous with what he knows. Anyway, Mike Swan took me under his wing and I shadowed him for that first year and was like two weeks ahead of most of the ninth graders, unlike you who had previous experience. And yeah, yeah, well, I, you know, so that first year I rode with Mike every day and pretended, I mean, I, some kids I think figured it out, but smoke and mirrors, it looked like I was an adult person, I mean, which I was, but as though maybe I had more experience than I did. Uh, and then the school was extremely generous with professional development. I went to clinics, I in the summer I hauled my horse to Colorado for a couple of summers to do really important and for me an effective work with other horsemen and horsewomen. You know, and I'm I had an athletic background for sure, so I, you know, I came on pretty quickly, I guess I'd say. And now it's 28 years later right? So I have three decades of experience. And the other thing I will say is a high school teacher, I wouldn't have gotten close to the horse experiences I've had in any other setting, in part because it would have been out of my reach financially, given school teacher salaries, that's a topic for another day. And I just feel so grateful and blessed by not only riding in the company of Mike Swan and Cam Shriver, who are as extraordinary horsemen as you will ever encounter. And I got to ride with them every day, all year long, for as many years as they were here. And then also, I have been matched with the right horse at the right time all the way through. And when I first fell in love with a horse I was paired with. And then I worked with her for six or seven years. And then I went on sabbatical. And it was like, oh my God, you've got to save her for me when I get back. And then so that year, of course, she was ready to go to a student. They needed her to go to a student. You know, I was thinking, no, no. But then I came home and I met the next horse. And suite, as we say in French. And that has been a huge revelation to me. And even this year, you mentioned the gray gelding, actually blue, who was an extraordinary companion to me, both. I learned so much about, as you do from each horse, right? You learn so much about your own horsemanship and the way your body works and new ways to communicate because this particular equine needs you to find and refine what you do and how you do it. Anyway, Blue taught me a lot. And he was, you know, I was paired with him during some tough times. We'll say medically. Uh, Well, I mean, it's part of the healing and health. I'm sure we'll get there. And then this past fall, he had a kind of chronic hawk weakness that kept popping up. And we finally, you know, and we tried a number of things to Manage that, and then it became clear that this terrain, the whole situation, it was just not. It was better for him to find a new place for him. So he's at pasture, I think somewhere in Texas or New Mexico. But and of course, I was you know saddened that that was happening. But then I met the new one, and she is awesome. She's this four-year-old, turning five soon, four-year-old mare who is just athletic, smart, cute little personality just the perfect horse. So mm. always the perfect horse.
0: Always, always. But that was
1: a lesson for me. You know, when I was first attached to that first one, it was like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then you meet the next one and it's like, oh, okay. The universal lines.
0: Yep. It always does. Well, especially I feel with horses. And I think so much of it is I always say when we're working with horses, whatever our problems are, they are bigger than our problems. And they can carry us and they can carry our problems to a new height where we see it in a new way.
1: And they can reflect our problems back to us, right? I mean, that thing, it's like a almost a cliche. People say the horse is a mirror, but they really are. Not only carry us and our problems, but in reflecting back to us, assuming we're willing to look in the mirror, they can offer us the keys to shifting things in a way that then allows for moving through that problem, finding the healing or the answers. I mean, whatever it is that you need in response to what's coming up for you. Absolutely powerful, powerful beasts.
0: Hey, Kat here for a quick commercial break. If you haven't heard my book, the adventure paradox is available on Amazon And it's been getting some really amazing reviews. It's actually been a little bit overwhelming uh, and maybe too much to say in the middle of this interview. So we'll get back to it. But I did want to let you know it is available. It was a bestseller in six categories. And if you really enjoy this podcast, I think you will really enjoy this book. So please go check it out. Are you familiar with the work of Linda Koenov? No. She wrote the Tao of Equus. She's written over twenty books. She's sort of the, oh, the mother. I just interviewed her recently. Oh, cool! She's kind of the mother of equine assisted human development, mm. sort of a, you know equine assisted coaching, et cetera. Et cetera. Yeah. And something she said in her interview is, "Horses are emotional geniuses." Right? <laughs> she said many things. <laughs> but, and and I think that well, and
1: part of that genius is how simple they are in their response. My oldest child comfort often says, mom, notice that feeling, feel it, then let it go. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think horses have a capacity to do that too. And they come back to you, even if they're responsive, reactive in a moment, they come back and they're over it. It's like that happened. And now that's behind us. And so let's start again and, and move forward.
0: Yep. All is forgiving.
1: Yeah. They say about mules that they never forget and they never forgive. That horses never forget, but they do forgive. Oh, I've carried with me. That's a good Even, one. In those moments when you go, oh, man, did I just provoke that situation?
0: Yeah, that's a good and one. And then they
1: come back. They do forgive.
0: So one thing I'm thinking, talking about the feelings, my husband said to me when we were dating, he said, feel the feelings. Feel the feelings, honey, feel the feelings. Yeah. <laughs> I think we have a culture where it's okay to feel certain feelings. Mm-hmm. But other feelings are considered you know, either taboo or not as preferable, et cetera. And it seems there's a movement coming through of, Hey, let's not pretend we're not having negative feelings. Let's not do the Pollyanna thing. And let's learn how to work through the feelings. And I think with horses, it's like that. and I'm sure you're familiar with this idea of leave your feelings at the barn, you know, leave your feelings at the door. You you can't bring that in. And the truth is the horse is like, I can tell you're not feeling good. What's up? <laughs>
1: Yeah, like the horse is going, mm, you think that's working for you? Uh, exactly. no. <laughs> you're
0: oh. a fake. Yeah, you're a fake in that you're happy. You're not. Yeah. So I would love to hear. And again, I saw this toad talk you did on, mm-hmm. on Facebook, right? And I can't remember what toad stands for teacher, teacher on active duty. Yeah, it was coming to me. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Which is also, as you know, the mascot of the school is the toad. So <laughs> it's like,
0: oh, how cute. Although I heard it changed at one point. I got a little confused with the mascot. But anyway. Well, it's
1: it did. And it was a student who wrote uh, an editorial piece in the school newspaper. This was back in the 60s, who suggested that the mascot should be the toad. And it was kind of tongue in cheek. I don't think he expected that the school was going to make the change, but then they did. Fascinating.
0: Wow. So it's true. In that talk, you really addressed how we talk about mental health. And I would also love to hear, because you're fluent in multiple languages, how mental health is talked about in different languages as well, because that's something that I wouldn't know as much about. But I would love to hear a little more about what you shared there and your perspective, because it really touched me and I think a lot of people. We are going to be talking about adult subjects now.
1: Oh, well, thank you for that. So I gave a Toad talk recently. So Toad, being a teacher on active duty, it's a week-long gig that we all do once a year. And part of the responsibility, aside from being the point person for any kind of emergency that may come up during the week, is that we're expected to give some kind of a talk at the school assembly on the Monday of the week that we're Toad. And I've been thinking about this for a while. Some background. My son, Brooke, was diagnosed with severe bipolar disorder at the age of 25, 25, 26. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, it became clear from things that he had written that I was able to read after he died that he had been struggling with severe depression for a long time, but became extraordinarily skilled at masking what he was experiencing on his inner landscape, and when he had his first depressive break, it was severe, and we learned a lot really quickly about not only his illness, but you know, I started to read broadly. It's what you do when life happens. It became important for me to learn more about what Brooke was living with. And after the first severe depressive break, he came to his dad and me and asked us to help him get medical psychiatric support, which we did. And then he tipped into mania, had a severe psychotic break, which, again, was the other face of this disease that he was living with. And honestly, I think if he had lived longer, his diagnosis may have evolved, you know, increasingly the notions that you know, there's schizophrenia and bipolar, that it's more of a continuum and that there are overlapping areas. And I, Brooke was so skilled at masking what was happening to him that I don't know that the full, well, I know that the full picture had not emerged in clear focus. Anyway, he was hospitalized in April, May of 2009. And it was a huge transition for us and our family and for me as his mom in trying to figure out how to support him and care for him. The short version is that fall, Brooke had lost hope of ever emerging from his illness in a way that he could trust. I think he was terrified. I mean, I know he was terrified. He left us a long, beautiful letter, which apparently it's quite rare and I know in my own experience of letting him go, it really helped me. Um, And, you know, he said the one thing he regretted was that he couldn't say goodbye to us directly because he knew we wouldn't allow him to make the choice he was about to make. And so he took his own life in November of 2009. And in his letter, it was very clear that not only was he releasing himself from the terrors that beset him, but he believed he was releasing us from the torture of watching him suffer, and so I have this personal experience of mental illness, and I I want to just note that I think the language, of course, my toe talk is about language. We'll get there. Sorry, it's a long-winded answer. <laughs> the language that we use, and particularly in these school contexts, because we are concerned about student wellness, for sure, and their mental health. But we use this coded language in which we don't say mental illness. And some of the kids in our midst, in anybody's midst, some people are grappling with symptoms, emergent symptoms of psychiatric illness, that I think it's important for us to craft vocabulary that allows us to distinguish between different situations and different needs. So that's a topic for maybe later or another day, because I think it doesn't help kids who are grappling with psychiatric symptoms for us to be talking about mental health and in the kind of vague terms that really is about teenage angst sometimes, and kids are grappling with how hard it is to be taking six courses and pressured by your parents and wanting this but your parents want that and like that can come together and be stressful and there are all sorts of things that can be addressed and and modalities for responding and helping kids relax and feel better but there are also symptoms of psychiatric conditions and again the language in this area of medicine needs to be yeah. evaluated and worked on. My Toad Talk was about, because I have, of course, given my own personal experience, been noticing how frequently people use terms like insane, crazy. Oh, that's so crazy. It's so insane. One of the books that I can highly recommend to anyone who may be living with or loving someone who lives with psychiatric symptoms is a book called The Collected Schizophrenias by Esme Wei-Jun Wang. She is a young, creative, and brilliant writer who lives with schizophrenia. And it's a book of essays, extraordinary. And the other book that was pivotal, it came out right around the time that Brooke died, is a book by Ellen Sachs, E-L-Y-N-S-A-K-S, called The Center Cannot Hold, My Journey Through Madness. And Ellen Sachs is a professor at USC in both law, she's a practicing lawyer, and uh, psychiatry, an advocate for the human rights of people living with psychiatric illness. Anyway, Ellen, I invited Ellen Sachs to come speak at school. and That was amazing. And again, story for another day. And Ellen has founded an institute at USC, that bears her name, and she invited Esme Wang as a guest. So I drove down to L.A. and met Esme. Um, And Esme is also a dear friend of another mutual friend. And in that talk, Esme challenged the people in the room, many of whom were there because of their own personal experience in some way, to change our language, that our language is something we actually can make changes and so that was, I don't know, three or four or five years ago. So it's an idea that's been percolating for a long time. And then this year, I just was struck at how common it is for both students and my colleagues to use these words very liberally. So my toe talk was a challenge to, it was initially it was interactive. We had a big whiteboard and I put insane and crazy on the board and said to the kids and the, well, the faculty were there too these two words. What do we actually mean when we say these words? And then they generated a list of probably 70 other words that were more precise in actually communicating what it was they were trying to say. And then, you know, I went on to say that, does it matter? Like, okay, here, we just observe what, you know, these, we use these words all the time, but look at all these other words. Does it matter that we reduce our vocabulary to these two words? And I would posit that it does because what were the three things? Uh, Stigma is real. And when we use those terms, crazy and insane, a kid who is actually worried that she might be experiencing things that would point to insanity, clinical psychiatric situations, it's terrifying that stigma will keep anybody who's worried about the interior landscape from sharing and finding the help. And certainly that was part of Brooke's struggle. I'm, you know, I'm sure. And there are, there's so many layers there. And it's also, it's so reductive, you know, it's like as somebody who loves language, let's use the words that are more precise Mm -hmm. and varied. So it was a, just a challenge. And I said to the gathered audience that you don't need to worry about me. Like, I hear these words all the time. I have my own experience of them. I mean, I don't like them. And it does rankle me. But I'm okay. I'm still here. I've survived. And I'm just doing what I can to at least engage kids in thinking about the choices that we make in terms of language. And then to your other point, a question about other languages, you know, my experience of Brooke's illness was 100% in English in this country. And so I haven't had firsthand experience of the language used, say, in in my case, it would be France or Francophone places. I'd be curious, though. I would definitely be curious.
0: Oh, my gosh. So many things on my heart. I know. know. (laughs) And first. Brooke, I probably am going to cry, but um, we used to play chess together. Oh, wow. Yeah, Yeah. we had a chess thing going.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, as I have said a number of times, and also in that talk, you know, Brooke had a big and powerful brain, and it was like super powerful in health. We used to joke that he had an extra lobe in his brain for language acquisition. As you know, he spent... Uh, His junior year in Beijing, China, and came home passing for Chinese. It's like, what? You know, he was 6'2, Caucasian dude, but had a face that reminded the people he knew in Beijing of the Xinjiang region, where there's a significant Caucasian genetic component. Anyway, and then, you know, French, Italian, Spanish, and his brain was equally powerful in illness. And, you know, the thing that you learn about mental illness just like you know we have this goofy idea that the brain is separate from the body what although i understand sort of where that comes from but the fact of illness in the brain it just as some people you know some organisms are more vulnerable than others and some versions of disease are more virulent and brooke had a particularly virulent version of his illness and his brain was particularly vulnerable. I think the, you know, the irony is that powerful, powerful organ that he possessed. And he was also such a joyful, hilarious human. And, you know, part of his struggle was not being able to make sense of why he suddenly felt so awful on the inside and trying, you know, again, this came up in his letter. He just, he felt that he had no reason to be like, as though, you know, that thing where we make our culture suggests to people, just get over it. Like just cheer up. I think he struggled with the idea that he had no reason to be tortured on the inside. And it didn't make sense to him. And of course it didn't make sense because it was, a disease that inhabited him and took over. So,
0: well, and I think yes. yes, he loved chess. Oh, yes. But I think going to the, the chess idea, like sometimes there's a stalemate, right? Mm-hmm. Where you just you don't, you can't win it. You know what I mean? Like that's not actually the game. And I think one of the terms you used is, you know, you were saying, I'm I'm okay. Everybody, I'm okay. I'm surviving. And I think I have been touched closely by suicide. And until you have been touched closely, you have no idea. Um, But
1: it's something that people want to tell you what's happening to you. And they want to tell you what you're feeling. And they want to explain to you that all of the things I, that was very hard for me. And I, it's partially why I'm so grateful to you in holding these conversations, whatever, wherever they take you with different people But suicide is a complex experience for each person, not only each person who makes that choice to leave this physical plane, but also for each person who's touched by it. In my experience, there's this phenomenon. People talk about suicide as though it's just a thing that can always be avoided. And here's all you have to do kind of thing. It's like... It's just not that simple. And right after Brooke died, somebody suggested that maybe I should connect to therapy. And I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. But I hadn't yet found the person I trusted Brooke's story with. And then I ultimately did when I was diagnosed with colon cancer. Mm -hmm. The following year, we'll get there. Another level of healing. I have a dear friend um, who actually has since passed away. But my friend Jennifer said, "Got this guy in Santa Barbara who's really awesome, and you know you might just want." To. And I, at that point, I still was very upbeat. You know, I had been diagnosed. I went for my first routine colonoscopy. I was fifty-two because when I had my first, what do they call it when you get the permission to go? It starts with an A, whatever. It's not a referral, but it's I got permission to go have my first routine colonoscopy and then Brooke died and it was like oh geez you know I just can't do that now and there was no urgent reason for me to do it so I went because I was asymptomatic and I went and I you know had my screening and I woke up and they said well, well surprise you have a tumor anyway I still was pretty upbeat and but I thought ah, okay Jennifer is recommending this person probably smart to create a relationship have it in place in case things go sideways and he was awesome and was someone who could hold Brooke's story and not reflect back this oversimplified kind of knee-jerk suicide thing. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's just, and I, yeah, I, I just have my kind of quiet responses and I turn the other way, I walk the other way as, I mean, I haven't taken on any kind of effort to influence that particular phenomenon but yeah i feel
0: like uh, an important thing just to share because i think we're on the same page in this for people mm-hmm. who are listening oh yes is, is that i found two things uh what i couldn't believe was first of all when you share with someone that you lost someone to suicide my experience was the first thing people would say is how did they do it that would be the first question And I just didn't understand, you know, of course, people might think that, but I didn't understand how painful a question that was. And the other thing that I learned about suicide that always comes to me when I'm touched by it or connecting with someone who's been touched by it is it's the only death that keeps on killing because you keep thinking, what could we have done? Is there anything we could have done? What if we had been, what if we had taken the trip? What if we had, what if we'd gotten to a different person sooner? What if, what if, what if, what if we, and I think for me, coming back to the space of recognizing death is death, the finality, and suicide has some things about it that makes it a little different than other deaths in some ways, but it is ultimately The finality of it and the grief and the shock and the processing. And that's where having spaces to talk about it and share the story, because here's the thing. So many people are not talking about it. And uh, suicide is the 10th cause of death in the United States, the 10th cause of death in the United States. Like, wait a second. What did you just say? I just read that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, so much of what you say resonates. And I would. I want to be clear to anyone who may be struggling with suicidal thoughts. If you can figure out how to share your story, the world will meet you. There are so many of us who have had firsthand experiences of that loss, which, of course, part of the difficulty or the impossibility is how sudden it is, right? And Death is death for sure, but there are different, there are different experiences for sure. And I think part of what I was driving at in the toad talk was that it is lonely and terrifying for people who are living with an inner landscape that is terrifying to them. And how do we create and hold space for people who do struggle with those invasive thoughts? To share that and to be held and supported and reassured to the extent that anyone can reassure them. And then to access whatever kind of support they need, including pharmaceutical support. And things are evolving so quickly. I mean, the use of psilocybin and other hallucinatory drugs in treating depression and other things... It's a little different for mood disorders. There are complexities there, but there's hope to be had. And, but again, we live in a culture that doesn't encourage the sharing of difficult parts of ourselves. And yeah. And you know, that question, how did they do? I dear friend, I mentioned earlier, who's also a friend of Esme's wrote a memoir that was published two years ago. It was called between two kingdoms Mm. and So the young author, Suleika Jawad, who wrote a book about her experience, she was diagnosed with an aggressive form of leukemia at the age of 22, 23, and her experience and journey through uh, treatment, which included a stem cell transplant, and then recovery, and the discovery that when you get through the treatment, you're on the other side. That that's when the healing actually begins as opposed to, oh, now I'm healed and it's over. And so Suleika so had a, a blog a column. It was a column in the New York Times called Life Interrupted, which you can you know Google. And people wrote to her in response. And I wrote to her at one point, just after I was diagnosed, I just found this column to be, because it was a column that just discussed issues that come up for anyone living with a cancer diagnosis, but particularly young people. And I wrote to her. It also had a, she had a class, a college classmate who was a former student from here, much beloved. So I was like, hope it's okay that I'm writing to you. And then I just sort of said, thank you so much. And again, the short version is I was able to invite her to come to school for this one event. The kids loved her. And then she came back another uh, spring term and taught a class here. We co-taught a class in creative nonfiction. So then she decides to take a road trip to meet some of the people who had written to her, right? And so her book is part the journey through the medical experiences, and then part road trip memoir. Anyway, there's a chapter in the book called Doing a Brook, uh, because in our family, the writing to someone you don't know, who you think is like way out of your league, but you're just going to write to them because you have something to say or... You want to connect with that person. Um, When Brooke was in college, he admired the work of Steven Pinker. And one day wrote to uh, Professor Pinker and said, you know, this is my story. I've read a couple of your books. I'm really fascinated with the work you do. I would love to meet you. In fact, I would love to work for you. And Brooke ended up working. You know, Pinker wrote him right back and said, I have office hours on Thursday. Come on by. And then Brooke ended up working in his lab for six months on a project that involved language acquisition in twins. Anyway, doing a book is kind of what I did. And I just wrote to Suleika. And then, um, but I read the advance. Suleika was very careful about having people who figured in the book, offering them a chance to read what was going to be published. And there was that question the answer to that question was included in the chapter. And I just thought that's not, it doesn't matter. It, that's feels voyeuristic to me asking of that question. I mean, I'm hundred percent in agreement with you. That question is, and the, I should also say that. So like it took that out of the book, which, mm-hmm. you know, and she got that right away. Right. So, but that, as you say, it doesn't matter. It, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter. And and it's nobody's business.
0: Well, I think the other thing I was thinking about is, and this is a little bit of a a tangent, but alcoholism and people struggling with alcohol or drug addiction, they don't mm. talk about it. And the family rallies around not talking about it. And then they die of alcoholism or an overdose. And again, there's this tiptoeing around, well, didn't you get them help treatment, this, that, what, what, you know, couldn't they just stop? Then there's Al-Anon, right, to support people. families of alcoholics and you know my experience when my i was first submerged into this world of survivors of loved ones who took their lives and i have had them on both sides of my family now right and my husband's father and we'd only been dating three months at that time so the point is his family was based in chicago a lot more resources in a larger area. And mm-hmm. one of the resources was through Catholic Charities, this group, and they called themselves Loss, Loving Outreach to Suicide Survivors. And they basically ran these sort of recovery groups and you would come in whenever your loss happened or whenever you were ready. You would be with other people who had you know, maybe been through a loss 10 years ago and were just coming back to check in and share about where they are now because it's the anniversary or... They're going to someone's wedding and they wish, you know, and I think the thing is in some ways, like any death, they're no longer with us, but in some ways, there are all these other strange conversations that people and little side things that people who haven't been touched just don't.
1: Well, and I would say that they're no longer with us in the physical plane, but my experience has been that Brooke is very present in mom and I carry him with me and Part of his legacy is, for me, giving a toad talk that I gave or having a conversation with you, talking about him, talking, uh, sharing my understanding of what he experienced. And then my experience of being his mom and not having the capacity to protect him or to to save him. Um, You know, one of the things... His sister and I Brooke owned a flatbed uh, six speed Dodge Ram 2500, <laughs> uh, which I took possession of. And Phoebe, his younger sister, and I loaded up his things because his dad just needed the things to be gone. Um, and then we drove across the country. And I, I remember, you know, we were coming across the Texas panhandle or something. And I just started weeping and, you know, Phoebe, bless her heart, you know, was trying to be supportive and just went, and I just, and in that moment, I was struggling with the fact that I had not been able to keep him safe, but, and then understanding that I, no one was able to keep him safe that, and that his agency in the face of his disease was the last thing he had control of. And and that it was my job now to hold that and honor it for him. And you know, his letter, as I said before, has been hugely helpful in coming to a place of being able to let him let his physical being go but you know i saw this really interesting graphic and you may have seen i think it was you know coming through facebook the other day that people think grief with time gets smaller and it's like no no that's not what happens and don't tell me how to live my grief but grief was represented as a ball of a certain size in a mason jar and the mason jar was this size and then the mason jar grows over time to hold the grief. And so I think, again, my experience, and I'm 13 years down the, this road, is that we learn to carry our grief. And if we're open to it, I think our grief teaches us again and again the ways in which not only the person you've lost has touched your life and changed who you are. And certainly, I mean, as a, As Brooke's mother, like, you know, as part of parenting, I mean, all of my children, I have to say all the time that I've learned more from parenting my children than from anything else I've ever done in my lifetime. And I continue to learn, like it doesn't stop. And I continue to learn from Brookie, you know, And those anniversaries. We have one of the things that has helped our family, I think, is settling into rituals that come up for us on the anniversary of his uh, birthday. And also on the anniversary of the day, he left the physical plane. And that just something that's, it's a yearly rhythm. Yeah. Anyway, I think we learn to carry our grief. And if, as I said before, if we're open to it, it can teach us so much about being in this world. And staying hopeful in the face of whatever comes our way because shit will come your way yeah. in some form or another and at some point and there's no you know that classic thing you can't control what happens to you but you do have I'll say some control or certainly some agency in how you respond yeah. to what happens to you But I want to be really clear. It's not like, just have a positive attitude and it'll all be fine. It's like, no, 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 no. Feel the feelings. Mm -hmm. One of the things that has helped me in letting go of Brooke is allowing those feelings to come up. And and grief is a beast. 13 years later, there are days when I'm just feeling kind of weepy. And it's like, okay, yep, yep, there it is. Hold the space, let it happen. and, And then you get to the other side of that.
0: Sorry, I'm I'm feeling so called to share an image with you. It's here. So we'll describe it for our listeners because the other thing is like, can you see it? Okay. It's the idea of talking about it. I think it's also listening and looking. And the beauty of art is that sometimes we're there. We don't have to get there. We're there. So this card just popped out. This is uh, from the way of the horse and actually the artist her interview is dropping this coming week and she's very very interesting What's interesting about this card and the reason I wanted to bring it up is we're nearing the end of our conversation is I think the deeper essay behind this card involves these two black horses who are both standing with their front legs on some rocks and they're touching noses and taking in each other's scent and the wind is blowing and they're you know maybe smelling the same things taking each other in and they're supposed to be two stallions a father and a son. And there's a lot in the essay about masculinity and the just get over it and pull up your bootstraps. But what's also interesting in the description of this card in the accompanying literature is that it talks about the rocks weeping. And yes, you kind of look a little closer and you can see that there's a face with a rock weeping. And I know that. Brooke was a rock climber and that you are, and this was the other thing I was thinking, you are connected on this sacred land right up against the Sespe wilderness. And I remember coming from Santa Fe, New Mexico to see Thatcher and do my application and thinking, I think I could be okay here because of those mountains and seeing that sunset in Ojai and thinking, you know, no matter what happens and high school was when I first had to walk through depression and okay this might end up being a part of my life is this is what depression feels like and this is what mood stuff and the things we can control and the things we can't control and so i would love to just hear what it's been like for you to return to nature and ground and also working with horses and we just saw your dogs and i know you had puppies <laughs> in the pupdemic you know but but what you in your own like healing journey with all of this and especially as the mom like now that I am a mom of course we have those fears for our children and then the reality of what we can control what we can't control and and I think riding a horse you know so many people they would just never go there but we learn I'm not getting on the horse thinking about falling off right like I'm getting on the horse. And well, I'm... some days. <laughs> <laughs> there, no, it is totally. life, but I would love to hear, you know, just sort of that image of the rock sweeping, but also grounding and connecting. And I know there's a rock.
1: Yeah. Well, um, we refer to it as Brooks Boulder. So I do live in this extraordinary landscape. And I don't know if the Ojai Valley runs east-west, which is unusual. Typically, valleys run north-south. And when I first moved out here and before I moved out, people said, oh, oh, hi, it's kind of mystical and powerful. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And then 28 years later, it's like, uh-huh. Yes, it is. <laughs> and, you know, there I've read that geologically, whatever's happening under the ground here is similar to what is under Table Mountain in Cape Town, which is often thought of as the uh, heart chakra of the continent. And I don't know enough about the geological formations to speak to that in any detail here, but there is definitely an energetic phenomenon in this landscape. And I, along with being grateful for a job that I love and just awesome horses that I have access to, I am daily grateful to live in this landscape, which has been healing for me. Even when I have been grounded by the various surgeries I've had, and I just want to say, you know, cancer-free for over five years. And I'm a statistical outlier. I mean, I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And here I am. We could talk about the keto diet later. But this landscape has been hugely calming and grounding. We went horsebacking together. I have uh, memories of the SESB wilderness with a crew of teenage people on horseback. And Brooke was, uh, he was an accomplished outdoorsman, rock climber. And after he died, a couple of close friends from his class wanted to organize a memorial plaque. So we got together, we created the plaque, and then it was a question of where to put it. And the obvious answer is the pergola, the memorial pergola in the outdoor chapel, which is where his dad was kind of leaning. But I just, I wasn't sure that that was the right spot. Anyway, Bo Manson and Brian Pittick, two colleagues who are were mentors to Brooke as a climber, and they offered to help me find a spot. So we walked out to the Jim Connor field, kind of looked around, and then there was this rock, this boulder that's just behind the upper gate to the upper field. And we walked up there, and then I turned around. You can look down the valley. And I thought, I think this is it. And Brian Piddock, in his inimitable, man-of-few-words way, paused and then said, well, this was Brooke's favorite boulder. I didn't know. Yeah. yeah. I really admired Brian in the moment for not having led with that. They both just waited for me to find the spot. And then that was, I think, June or so, Of 2010, it was in the fall that I was diagnosed and I had my first surgery. And when I was recovering in my bed, it turns out that through my bedroom window, late in the day, the sun catches the plaque. I can see it. (laughs) Oh my God. So that was, there are these ways that kind of a mystical presence manifests. Brooke also loved ravens and crows. Mm -hmm. And I often, struck at bird presence so yeah you know and and that boulder like you can anybody can scramble up on top so the girls have families now and there are eight grandchildren in all and when they come to visit we head out to the boulder and we all scramble to the top the boulder is where we go on Brookie's birthday and on the anniversary of his death too and we typically read the last section of song of myself section 52 which is just quintessentially Brooke. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. So I think any of us finds these little rituals, but this place is a place that he loved too. And when he died, he lived in Vermont and that's another place. And we spread his ashes on a mountaintop there. And that's another place that we go sort of ritually, but this Valley and just being in the back country has been such a gift for me. Of course, it's part of my job. Your listeners might be interested. We take the whole student body in small groups. Each faculty member offers, organizes and offers a six-day camping trip in the backcountry, both at the very beginning. It's the first thing we do when the students come back in the fall and then also at the end of the year. And those trips and also just the opportunity, like I can get on my horse and ride up to the ridge if I want to. So, yeah, and there's been a lot of press recently about a, what is it, woods bathing, like bathing, forest bathing. Like you go in, you know, you go into wilderness and it's healing and uh, it's restorative. Mm. And for me, absolutely, absolutely so. And I'm, again, so grateful that I I live in a house that is literally on the edge of the Los Padres National Forest.
0: Mm. So
1: beautiful. and even when I'm not out in the world, I'm sitting at my table and looking out at it.
0: I think for, Jen, just thinking for our listeners to understand where your house is located mm-hmm. and the boulder is is quite far away, quarter mile even? What would you say? From my house? Yeah. That you oh, not
1: the window. Not, not even. But it's it's a little bit of a it's, waste. Uh, it's, it it's it not, was a surprise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And there are trees and whatnot in between. Yeah. You would not have guessed Again. that, the, yeah, that the plaque was visible from the house, any window in the house, but
0: and, and shining. I can just see the gleam, the sparkle, the that moment of healing, connection to yeah. the divine, to the other side, to and I think. For me, working with those working through a health journey or healing grief process, we had an incredible distinction between sadness and grief in my conversation with Linda Cohen. Obviously, you want to go listen. absolutely, but I feel like as we wrap up in these last minutes, this is so uh-huh. yeah, I could we'll talk, talk to you for talking. hours. You know, we could keep uh-huh. talking. You know, what are the three things? And for me, it's horses, mountains, and dogs, and there are many, many more, but mm-hmm. those are really big ones that for me are a rally cry, a call in a tribe and a conversation with these things that I love so much here on earth that I feel are important, not only in our time, but in the times before and future generations. Mm-hmm. You say you're sort of two or three that, you know, just light you up.
1: Well, I want to give you four. So I'm going to put horses and dogs together, right? Good? Okay. <laughs> Oh, wow. You know, these mountains for sure, like the back country of the mountains and mountains, I would say, I mean, and the, and the big sky, I grew up on the East coast, but I, I don't imagine living there again. You know, uh, there's something about this landscape that, so, so horses and dogs, mm-hmm. maybe I should just say powerful landscape. It doesn't have to necessarily be mountains, but maybe I'll just say the, the Ojai Valley. I, you know, it it is huge. It is huge for me. And then I would say my children and grandchildren. So the legacy, the experience of being a conduit for life coming into this world and having learned so much from them, they are absolutely the things that call me back into myself, into the world. And now they have their own babies think of them all as a as a collective and I should probably start that would be my first my first thing but the horses and dogs for sure and then this landscape
0: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah
1: I'm kind of hundred with you there
0: <laughs> yep those well things. I think the last thing I just want to echo you know especially for those who are, far from horses, far from dogs, you know, maybe they just have a statue of them. It's in a painting. They really want to have a dog, but they have a lifestyle where it's not conducive. They live in a place where they can't have one. When you're talking about the road trip, right. And just that open road where you can take moments, you can take space, you can take time to just
1: (sighs) totally. And I want to say too, like, I think we, you're reminding me that we carry these things within us. Right. So Brooke is no longer in my physical world, but I carry him. You know, there's this interesting thing that I discovered for the first time in someone else's Toad Talk, which is called microchimera. Do you know that we carry cells from the babies we have born in our bodies, and that those cells, when we are ill or injured, go to the spot of illness or injury? And they don't fully understand that yet. But also, siblings carry the cells of their older siblings. So Phoebe, for example, my youngest has cells from all three of her siblings. And when I was listening to this toe talk, because I've always had the experience of carrying, feeling that my kids are with me, even when they're not physically with me, it's like, duh, they are, turns out. And then, and even from across the veil, the experience of physical awareness of Brooke or any of the three girls it's because they are and I want to say that about place too because I was like there's the Ojai Valley and this landscape all the landscapes where I have lived and been happy and another one is France for sure Mm. places that I lived in France and I I carry you know that's inside Um, and those are the things that I draw on for sure
0: Shimmer. Will you say that again? Mega? Micro shimmera. Micro shimmera. Google that. I'm gonna Google that. I'm gonna write it down for our show.
1: Yeah. And I again, I think it's a relatively new discovery. They're still, you know, researching. For example, they're not sure whether those cells from our babies gather at the site of injury or illness in order to try to Mm -hmm. heal. Mm-hmm. Or or what, you know, what that's about. And part of how they discovered that they were actual cells of individual offspring was that they can be male or female. These, right, depending on, you know, mm-hmm. they can be connected to the the babies you have born. Yeah, this colleague, you'd love this colleague. Uh, she teaches biology and she was pregnant when she gave the toe talk and she hates to give the speech. <laughs> like she hates it but she settled on. So she kind of said, well, you know, I really don't enjoy doing this, but I figured I would talk about something that's actually happening. And it it was a cool talk for sure.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. Oh my gosh. I let's do this again. I want to keep talking.
1: Yeah, (laughs) no, absolutely. And there's just so much, you know, there's so much and the power of Sharing stories mm-hmm. is huge. And I think more than like the power of a positive attitude, it's like the power of connection is what sustains us. And it allows us to hold all of the complexity at the same time, as opposed to just think positive. It's like, nah,
0: no. <laughs> I mean,
1: yes, when possible, but
0: yes, and I think, and, the, and right. Yeah.
1: And and the one other thing I'll say about grief is, um, there was a moment. Oh my God, Brooke died in November of two thousand nine. I broke my ankle in April of two thousand ten. The horse I was riding fell down. Okay. Not even a rodeo moment. She just slipped and fell. Yeah. And I was on crutches. And one morning um, there was a mouse in the like half caught in the mouse trap, and dragging it across the road and another the road the the kitchen floor. I called, I won't identify this person, but somebody that, you know, super close. And he was super annoyed that I had maybe awakened him. It was 10 in the morning or something. And at one point in the conversation, he was so annoyed. He just said, you know, it's time for you to get over yourself kind of thing. Like people who tell you that it's time to stop grieving or it's time to stop being you lose those folks. Yeah. You know, it's, it's okay to give yourself permission to nurture the relationships that hold space for you to feel fully what you're feeling and look for the ways to find your way forward. But really, or and I think really important to give yourself permission to let go of anyone else. Just not a good time for me.
0: And maybe they'll come back around later. But yeah, I think maybe this is the final gift in our conversation, but the gift to take your time, Mm. take your time, take take the time it takes, take the time it It, takes and just trust the time.
1: I had a yoga teacher who would often say everything in its own time. Mm,
0: Love that. I say that all all the time. Even our next conversation where we may tap on community and a few of the other things
1: that we had on your list, minute.
0: Blue Zones, it has been an honor. Thank you so much. Oh, the honor
1: has been all mine. I really um, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for doing the series that you're doing. Just uh, really glad to have been able to connect. And I hope we do talk again soon. Yeah,
0: we will. It's the time for it. I love it. But thank you so much. I'm so grateful. Do you love horses as much as I do? If you do, you might want to join my healthy as a horse community. We affectionately call ourselves HA. (laughs) H-A-A-H. HA. In Ha, we meet once a month on the first of every month, and we go deep on how to become healthier and look to horses as our muses for health. You might want to work with me in one of my soul coaching programs. Right now, I'm running a special as part of the pre-sale for my book. It includes soul coaching, healthy as a horse monthly community, and a pre-sale of the book. If you are interested in joining, please send me an email, katcalwellmyers at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I really love having you here and I would love to have you join me in my Healthy as a Horse community to learn more about up-and-coming guests and reflect on and meet and greet some of the guests we have each month. I hope you have a beautiful day. Please get out there and smell the hay.